back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. So just, uh, I guess, a quick reminder, we're going to talk about emergent airways. Um, and I'd really like to emphasize like the preparation, like the preparation doesn't happen when you decide to do it. The preparation actually happened, you know, hours, days ago yeah. when you prepared your kit. Agreed. I, uh, I agree. So, um, so typically if I, if I could just start when we, sure. we get new, um, CRNA students. We have the uh, United States Army graduate program in nurse anesthesia. We got the the students at WOMAC. And one of the first things we start talking to them about is their airway plans. And one of them is, uh, you know, hey, an unrecognized difficult airway plan where you, you, you do have the time to assess your patient and there's nothing that you found in your assessment that's concerning for a difficult um, intubation or more importantly, uh, you know, a difficult mass ventilation, but then you get back into the OR, you give your induction medication, and now you either have a hard time mass ventilating or you have a hard time uh, intubating. Like you have to have thought through those plans um, well in advance of actually going back into the OR and putting somebody to sleep. So and that goes for the field as well. And in the field, it's even more important just simply because you don't have all the backup you would, you would have if you're at like a roll three or a roll two. If you're someplace even more far forward, it might just be you um, and a surgeon or uh, you and, and just somebody else. So it's always good to kind of have those, those plans in your head. And then more importantly, also have that equipment um, that you would need. So typically, uh, far forward, um, you know, I have what I call my, you know, my induction roll, and it's just a, a small little roll bag, and it, and it kind of starts from, you know, these are the medicines that I'm going to use to induce somebody and, and, and uh, induce them with general anesthesia. And then I have my primary plan, which is to use a laryngoscope blade, um, and whether I'm going to use a, a Mac four or Mac three. And then, um, you know, my backup would be a Miller or I start with a Miller and my backup is a Mac, but typically your backup plan, um, should not be a blade that you are not, uh, you, that you don't know how to use. So that's one of the things where I tell our nurse anesthesia students is that, uh, if your backup plan is to switch to a different blade, then you need to be just as proficient using that blade. Your, if your backup plan is to go to something that you're not proficient with, that's not a very good backup plan. And, and then, uh, once again, in the field, like if you're, if it's a trauma patient and this is uh, not an elective surgery and you're not going to back out of this, um, and you, you know, you DL and you, you just, you know, you can't get a view for whatever reason. I have a, a bougie right by my side that I will go to. And if I'm struggling to get um, a view and I can't use the bougie, then I immediately move to the next little pocket in my bag, which is a, is a crike kit. And um, then I go down that algorithm of, you know, getting a, a surgical airway. So as far as the preparation goes, I know in my mind that I'm going to do this first, I'm going to do this second, and I'm going to do this third. And that third um, uh, 
procedure is going to be a surgical airway if, if need be. And what I've seen happen, and it's happened to me as well, is you get kind of procedural fixated. Um, you're like, oh, I, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to continue to do that same thing over and over again with the same outcome. Like you just can't get the, the ET tube in the right place. So you have to be able to have the clinical maturity to, to try something once, give it a good uh, effort. And if you can't, um, uh, you know, accomplish what you're trying to do, which is to get the tube into the trachea, uh, then you need to move on. And sometimes moving on to the next step, uh, people have a hard time doing that. So I would say is, is just, you know, make sure that when you're training, um, if you're whatever um, model you're working on is to go through those steps and do it um, electively. So you, you know, you, you DL with a blade and just, you know, just, okay, I can't get this tube. I'm going to try to do the bougie. I can't use the bougie. I'm going to immediately move to Crike. So that way you get that muscle memory of getting into your kit and then also going down the, the algorithm of, I can't, my first thing I couldn't do. So then I'm moving to the second thing and I'm moving to the third thing. So that way it's not um, something that you're doing for the first time. Obviously uh, we can't, in the, in the operating room, you know, electively move to a, a crike. Like that's obviously not going to happen. But when we are using our uh, mannequins, we'll do that just to get the muscle memory of getting into our kit and using it. So that way it's not foreign to us when it actually happens. No, I think that's a, that's a really good point about having the, the maturity to change tactics. You know, I see that uh, a lot of guys, and it could be the crike, it could be as simple as an IV, they will be like so emotionally or like invested in them doing this one thing that they'll spend a drastic amount of time trying to fix it or make it fit when it could have been faster and easier just to back out and do something else. Oh yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. And I mean, I've, I've gotten into that where, you know, you're, you spend a lot more time on a procedure than you, you should. Um, so for example, let's say that, you know, you, you do, you try to intubate somebody orally intubate them with a Mac four or whatever you're going to use. You pass the bougie, you can't get it. And now you're struggling with the crike. Um, can't, you know, okay, I'm, I'm struggling with this crike, you know, for whatever reason, I can't get it. So then you need to move on. So what's the backup plan for that? Can you, can you go to an LMA? Um, can you just go to an oral airway and now you, now you can ventilate. So you, you have to be able to move on. And what the amount of time that passes by from that initial try um, to potentially getting to an LMA can be a few minutes if you're not paying attention to the time, which is difficult to do when you're, you know, your sympathetic nervous system is going and you're, you're struggling trying to get this airway. Um, it's, it's, it sometimes can take somebody else coming in to be like, Hey, we need to stop doing what you're doing and move on to the next step. And you're like, okay, I got it. And that, yeah, like you said, with IVs, art lines, just about anything, some of those procedures can be extremely humbling, um, where you just, for whatever reason that day, you're just, you just can't get it. And, you know, you got to move on and, and come up with another plan, which is, which is challenging to do, um, in the moment. Right. Especially when, you know, you're like the guy, like in the OR, anesthesia, the CRNAs, like they're the airway gurus, right? Mm -hmm. 
So. Yeah. Yeah. So in two, like I always, uh, you know, for me, I think, um, you know, you, you just have to, you know, set your pride aside. And at some point, like, I don't care who gets the airway in, if I can't get it in and, and somebody comes in to help me and they get it in, I'm like, thank God that that airway got in. Like it's, it's, um, you just have to, you know, check your ego at the door and just know that, some days you're just not going to be the guy to get that in and someone else is going to walk in and they're going to get it for you and you should just thank them and move on. Um, whether that's an IV or a crike or, a, you know, getting the LMA in or ventilating the patient or just kind of bailing you out of whatever situation you're in that you just can't get yourself out of. Um, that's, uh, you have to like check the ego at the door. That's usually the first thing I always tell our, our, uh, graduate, uh, nurse anesthesia students is that like, look, it's not about ego. It's about making sure the patients wake up safely and go home. So. Yep. Very wise. So earlier you had mentioned, um, you know, kind of like a, a prep before prep before a case prep before a mission, uh, essentially the same. What kind of thought process do you go through when you're preparing your gear specifically for an airway? Uh, so I, I, I try to make it as simple as possible. Um, I just am really just looking at the, it's a very se sequential process. I need, you know, this widget first, I need this widget second, I need this widget third. And these are, this is my emergency airway plan. And then if I'm going out with, with, um, you know, other team members, um, I will let them know what my plan is. And I'll also let them know like, Hey, if, if you see I'm procedural fixated, you know, please, you know, intervene. Um, and typically if I'm with another, if I'm with a surgeon, I will just say, Hey, um, you know, you you are, you are better at surgery than I am. And, um, we will, you know, discuss at the time, like, Hey, go for the crike or I'm going to do it. And if I haven't gotten it in 60 seconds, you know, you're going to come in here and, and, and do this. Um, but as far as um, checking my kit, you know, I've, I've had it set up the same way for 10 years. And it's something that um, I, so in my bag, my, um, my, my rucksack that I use for my medical care, I usually have, I start from the outside and then work my way inside. So everything that I need to get a case started is kind of on the outside of the bag. And then things that I, that will eventually take place throughout the case are more inside the bag. So that way at night or under duress, um, I'm not touching 15 different pockets to accomplish one task. I can, I can grab one, um, kit bag and that kit bag will accomplish, you know, intubation. And then therefore, um, like it's got everything I need. It's got the, the syringe to inflate the ET tube. It's got, you know, the stylet. I've got my laryngoscope blade. I've got the medicines that I need to, uh, uh, induce somebody and it's in a sequential order. And I usually either have it set up from left to right, how I read or from top down, um, and that way it's, it's, it's muscle memory. It's easy for me to, um, hand it also off to somebody else and be like, I need what's in the, the top, 
uh, pocket. I need what's in the, the second to top pocket. I needed the third pocket, the fourth pocket. So that way somebody can assist me. And it's very easy for them to grab what I need, especially if it's not a medical person. But everyone understands what pocket three is if it's labeled pocket, pocket three. Just give me everything out of pocket three and they can go in there and grab it. So that's typically how I set it up. I set it up that a non-medical person can assist me, but I can also do it very quickly by myself. Do you use an acronym like MISMADE or anything like that? Um, yeah, I mean, as far as MISMADE goes, uh, yes. Like, you know, as when I'm checking my stuff before I go out, I, I think I've just done it for so long that I, I'm, I can eyeball my bag and know that I have everything that I need. But for somebody that just doesn't do it very often or like, because for me, I do it in the OR every day. So I know exactly what I need. So I, when I look at my, my rucksack, I, I know exactly what I need and I can, I can eyeball it. But yeah, so there's different acronyms you can use. Uh, MISMADE is one of them. And that's a great acronym for somebody that's necess- not necessarily working in a hospital every day that might do more training exercises and just doesn't get into their kit and they're kind of heading out and they're looking at, okay, do I have everything I need? Like, yeah, MISMADE is, a, is definitely one that um, we teach. Okay. Um, as far as medications go, now I know you're talking about intubation and doing RSI, but, uh, you know, for a medic such as myself, you know, I guess, do you have any tips and tricks about what kind of medications I should be thinking about um, and how do I get that done for an emergent type airway? So that, so we always, when we teach, you know, the medics and we mm-hmm. kind of talk about the pillars of anesthesia. So those pillars are, you need something for analgesia, right? So do you have, you know, fentanyl and ketamine kind of covers that. You need something for amnesia, right? So we typically will use Versed in the field and Versed covers amnesia. You know, ketamine um, is not the greatest amnestic. It's a disassociative anesthetic. So it just kind of disassociates the the top portion of your brain from the bottom portion of your brain, but you can still be forming memories. So we always tell people like, you know, like, small amount of versed goes a long way in um, your patients when you're trying to create amnesia. And then the other one is akinesia, right? So we don't want our patients moving um, while we're trying to intubate. You know, it can be challenging to, um, if you get a good look at the cords um, while you're trying to intubate and they're coughing or moving or bucking and you're trying to get that tube in. Um, So yeah, you want the patient to be akinetic or not moving. And then the other one, um, and this is kind of where anesthesia providers kind of make their money in the operating room and downrange is you want autonomic stability. So for a a patient that has otherwise um, normal physiology, so when I say normal physiology, they're not, you know, they're not hypovolemic, they're not bleeding to death, they don't have a tension pneumothorax or or, um, any type of um, uh, thing that would make their, any type of injury or um, uh, illness that would derange their physiology. You, you don't want the parasympathetic nervous system to fire, right? So you don't want somebody to become hypotensive and bradycardic. And you, you don't want the sympathetic nervous system to fire either. So that they become tachycardic and hypertensive. So for us in the operating room, say we're doing an elective case, you know, we will provide um, that autonomic stability in, in a couple of different ways. But typically, if you give somebody enough 
um, narcotic or analgesia, when you go to DL them, which is more stimulating than surgery, um, they typically will not have a sympathetic response or a parasympathetic response. Now, somebody who's um, got uh, deranged physiology, you know, downrange, if you have somebody who's hypovolemic, and they're alive because their sympathetic nervous system has fired, right? So they're hypertensive, or not, excuse me, they're, they're not hypertensive, but they've, they've, there's tachycardic and they're, they have a blood pressure because their sympathetic nervous system has fired. You don't want to knock that out, right? So you can knock that out um, by giving uh, too much of a dose of induction drugs. So even if that's ketamine, um, you probably don't want to give a narcotic. Um, and if you're going to use Versed in that scenario, you definitely probably want to use a much smaller dose. So that's kind of how for a, for a medic downrange, you know, like ketamine, Versed and fentanyl are great medicines to, to have, and they can accomplish the, uh, the, the four A's of anesthesia. Now, the other one that we use, that we use all the time, and I do give it during my RSIs while I'm deployed, is a neuromuscular blocker. So I do not carry succinylcholine just simply because I don't have a good plan for malignant hyperthermia, which succinylcholine can trigger. And we just don't have enough room to pack out uh, dantrolene, which is the, the medicine that you would want to give in that scenario. So I just don't carry succinylcholine. And typically, you need to keep it refrigerated. And if once you take it out of the refrigerator, it, um, it's only good for about 14 days. So you can only imagine in, you know, in the middle of the summer, uh, in some warm place that that succinylcholine is not going to be as potent as it would be if you just took it out of the refrigerator. So we typically carry lyophilized um, vecuronium. So we have to reconstitute it. But typically that medication, um, whether it's uh, in the middle of the summer or in the middle of the winter, uh, 10 milligrams or 20 milligrams of vecuronium, is, that's going to be the, the concentration of that medicine. So that's what we carry for akinesia. Um, when we're going to do an RSI, does that, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess technique wise, we don't, at least I don't do a lot of, uh, DL, um, mm -hmm. crike is generally our go-to if we need to secure an airway, uh, rather than just have a patent airway. Um, now I guess one thing that I'm personally, I guess, concerned about is, you know, you arrive to, to find the patient desperate in desperate need of an airway, mm -hmm. um, but is now is not yet unconscious from that. So I need to get control of this patient in order for me to, you know, do my procedure correctly um, and as safely as possible. So maybe if I just tell you my thoughts on it and then you can critique the crap out of me. Yeah, but, sounds good. <laughs> um, my thought is uh, ketamine would probably be my go-to. Um, I planned on, so I carry uh, ketamine 100 milligrams to 1 ml. I would probably use a 5 or 10 cc syringe, suck up 5 cc's on a, an adult size male. Um, IM injection um, to whatever limb I can get to quickest. And while they're going down, which would hopefully be within a minute or two, I'm prepping my gear and going for the airway. Um, what do you, I guess, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, no, that that sounds completely reasonable. I think um, you know if you know when you're looking at somebody's. So if you're if we're going down the March algorithm, right? So you arrive there and you know you've taken care of your your massive hemorrhage and now you're moving on to airway and you recognize that they they definitely need an airway. I would say <clears throat> that you know can do they tolerate you know at that point in time without any medication would they tolerate you know as long as there's no contraindications to it like a nasal trumpet mm-hmm. um, and then some sort of an airway maneuver to, that buys you time because what what my concern would be and I'm assuming you're thinking this like that that you're waiting that 60 seconds um, for that. Uh, ketamine to kick in and they really don't have a good uh, respiratory uh, pattern just simply because they're obstructing. So I would immediately try to fix the obstruction um, and then go from there. So yeah, so I would say, yep, hit them with the the IM ketamine and then um, go from there. And I always like if, if you're in the middle of trying to get an airway and the patient's not akinetic, um, then the question is, is, you know, do you need to get an IV? Do you need to then give them more ketamine versus, you know, to the, in the IV and go from there. But I would say if, you know, 50 to hundred IM ketamine in a, in a patient should, uh, produce enough of a, you know, the, the four A's of anesthesia in order to be able to, to get a crike. Right. Now I, or yeah, what is, a, yeah. I'm sorry, like yeah, a, ma- a massive dose, you know, mm-hmm. like 500. I'm confident that that will knock just about anybody down. Um, but I also am kind of afraid that, you know, once you get the airway, you know, you've already made things worse. Okay. You've gotten the airway, but, you know, you've lost, you know, consciousness and you've lost, you know, you're going to pay for, you know, that, uh, that big dose of ketamine. Yeah. I, yeah. There's, there is definitely a debt to pay when you're given somebody a large dose of any type of IM medicine. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it all depends. I think, you know, if you're, if you have somebody that's hypotensive and tachycardic and you're looking at them and they're pale and they're, you know, they're diaphoretic and, and you're really concerned about, um, their, uh, you know, their cardiovascular status, you know, 500 ketamine is a, is a pretty big dose. I would definitely go towards the, the, the smaller side or the a, a leaner dose of ketamine in that particular scenario. Um, like, a, like if you had normal physiology, like if you weren't hypotensive and tachycardic, um, you know, 500 ketamine, people can tolerate that, but you are correct. Like they're definitely, uh, you know, you might, I've seen, I have seen, um, you know, in those bigger doses of ketamine, I have seen like, not necessarily apnea, but definitely a diminished respiratory rate, mm-hmm. um, where they're only ventilating, you know, three to four times per minute. Um, so that would be my other, my other concern is, is now you've, now you're dealing with somebody that you probably are going to have to ventilate, whether you have like one of the smaller, um, austere ventilators, like a save vent or, uh, another one of the smaller ones out there. But now you're dealing with having to use your BVM and ventilate the patient mm-hmm. versus using a, a smaller dose of ketamine enough to, um, have them tolerate that, you know, that crike incision, um, and go from there. And I've, I've, I've talked to, you know, I've seen patients that are so far down the, uh, the kind of that shock 
um, algorithm that they required no ketamine and got criked and they were still mm-hmm. breathing on their own and looking at you and you're like, whoa, okay. Glad I didn't give you any ketamine or I didn't give you any drug. Right. Right. So I think it, I think it's that's that's a hard one. That's uh, that's one where I think like you're you're in the scenario or you're in the the actual patient care continuum and you're looking at the patient and you're like, yeah, that's 500 is way too big of a dose or 500, you know, you know, I think let's start with a hundred and see what I get yeah. or start with something smaller. Even if you, if you had an IV, it's obviously a lot easier to titrate yes. than when you're, than when you're given an IM or an IV or an IO. Yep. Okay. Um, what else? But the the other thing is is with with ketamine um, when you're when you do when you are using ketamine and you're trying to keep somebody spontaneously ventilating um, you do have to push it slower where mm-hmm. um, if you if you bolus them very quickly like I'm talking like you're gonna make that ketamine disappear in less than you know three or four seconds like you will see a period of apnea with that that you it's un, it's an uncomfortable period of apnea where you're probably gonna have to do something about it if you can't get the, the airway versus trying to keep somebody spontaneously ventilating and you're using IV ketamine just push it slower you know a minute over a minute or two which you know in a in a care under fire scenario seems like a long time to to push a, a medicine but what you don't want to deal with is that apnea so it's worth the wait to to push it a little bit slower so you don't make the patient apneic right um but as far as waiting for that that drug to take effect on somebody let's just say they they need an airway um you know, and they're not hypotensive. They just need the airway. Okay. Is it, is, um, just putting them in like left lateral recumbent is, I mean, how do you think is, is as far as per, not protecting the airway, but at least keeping an airway patent, how well have you seen that work? Um, you know, I, I have not, tr- I've not like typically we'll, we can, we'll wake up, you know, kids or p- the pediatric patients from anesthesia and we'll put them in that kind of that left lateral recumbent recovery position. Um, but obviously adults, we're not doing that just because, you know, they're, they're a lot bigger and more challenging to turn on their left side. Um, you know, I think a good head lift, like if you do a good like head lift and then chin tilts, as long as it's not contraindicated, um, typically that relieves a lot of the airway obstruction that you can see. Um, with patients that you've given, whether it's narcotic or ketamine, and they're just, um, they're kind of their tongue is obstructing their airway. Uh, usually a good, like a jaw thrust um, will work. The problem with doing a jaw thrust is you have to continue to do the jaw thrusts. What I would mm-hmm. say is, is if you're doing a head lift chin tilt and it hasn't relieved um, your obstruction and then you do a jaw thrust and it's relieved your obstruction, then I would go ahead and do some sort of a, you know, an oral airway or a nasal trumpet, which is, it's typically your tongue is, is the issue. Right. So that's, I guess another question is uh, about the nasal, uh, nasal airway is, you know, when we, when you measure it from the tip of your nose, right. To the <laughs> ear, mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't seem like it's always long enough. You know, you open your mouth and you can see the tip of the NPA. If it's the tongue that has you have to control, like, I guess, how, how do you measure it? 
to get the right uh, length. Yeah. So, you know, in adults, in a, in a, in an adult male, a 32 or a 34 French, um, nasal trumpet is going to be long enough. Um, and I, I, I typically when I'm in the OR and I have, you know, in an adult sized male who's six foot, you know, six foot two, um, and you know, otherwise, uh, you know, doesn't have like a, an extremely long neck or any, just they're, you know, they're, they look, uh, they look, their body habitus looks normal. Um, a 32 or a 34 French is going to work just fine. Um, usually anything smaller than that, like once you start getting down into like 30 and 28 Frenches, like for males, that's usually a little bit too short. Um, but say you have a short man, say like a, when I say a short male, let's say you have, you know, anybody like a female or, uh, a male that's, you know, whatever, you know, five foot five, um, you can always, the, you know, go longer, um, than, than shorter. Uh, but it's, it's, I think when you, when you measure that, it's a swag, like, is this going to work or not work? Like, so mm-hmm. let's say you have a female who's five foot five and you put, you know, a 28 French or, uh, or a 30, 30 French nasal trumpet and it doesn't work. And you're like, all right, well, let me upsize. And if you can, right. Like, so if you're able to pass that nasal trumpet without causing, um, any type of, of damage, then put the bigger trumpet in and see if it works. Like, okay. I think it, there's, I don't think there's like a, there's like a magic, um, thing. Cause we'll try different stuff. Sometimes you put an oral airway in and it's just not working very well. And then you just like, okay, well it's not working. I need to change this. And then you slide in a nasal trumpet and it works great. Sometimes you just can't put the nasal trumpet in for whatever reason, you know, somebody's got like a deviated septum and you're just like, okay, well I, I, I just can't, I'm not going to, um, cause a bunch of bleeding in the, in the, in the back of the oral pharynx by, um, creating trauma by trying to put this nasal trumpet in. Let me, let me try to make this oral airway work or, you know, move to a, move to a, uh, um, a superglottic airway, some sort of an LMA, or you just have somebody that's hopefully helping you and just be like, Hey, just hold the jaw like this. And while you, that frees up your hands to do other things. Okay. Um, as far as the procedure of like an emergent airway, is there anything else that's really important that we hadn't talked about yet? I don't think so. I just, you know, be prepared, um, for the patient to vomit, especially in trauma patients, if they're full stomachs and have a plan for that. You know, there's, there's not a really good plan. Um, there's the squid suction that, you know, you can use. Um, but that's one of the, one of the things that, you know, you always have to be concerned about is if the patient vomits and then some of that vomitus finds Mm -hmm. its way into the lungs, like that's, that's going to be a problem for you a couple hours from after it happened. Um, so just have a plan for, you know, trying to get that vomitus out of the airway. And then if you can, you know, you know, you have like a deep suction catheter to where you can put that down the ET tube and use your squid suction to try to suck some of that um, acidic fluid out of the lungs that makes it down in there. But that's, that's the other big thing. Like, you know, have a, have a plan for um, the patient vomiting and then have a plan for trying to get that vomitus out of the airway and then have a plan for once you get the ET tube in, like try to try to suck the or aspirate out whatever fluid you can that's made its way into the lungs. Yep, yep, very smart. Always, always remember suction, right? Yeah. Um, so I guess since this is a prolonged care, and we've been talking a lot of T C early stuff, 
um, you know, once, once you've kind of fixed whatever the problem was, or if you're able to fix whatever the problem was when it comes to an airway, you know, in a hospital, you would move towards extubation. Um, I guess how, how do you, when do you decide that this patient is ready to be extubated and kind of, if you wouldn't mind kind of walk through that kind of process. Yeah. So, so let's use a, let's just use a, a patient that you, you know, maybe one of the um, SACA medics will deal with downrange. So let's say you have somebody that needs like a lower extremity fasciotomy, right? So they're, they have some sort of an injury to their lower extremity and you have to do this and you're, you're, for whatever reason, you're not going to um, use regional, right? So you don't want to, you want to make sure that um, you're able to assess CMS after your procedure. So you're going to have to do a general anesthetic on this patient. So let's say you, you know, you get through the general, you, you know, you put the two, you, you intubate the patient, you get through the surgical procedure and now you're kind of like, okay, they don't need to be intubated anymore. So I have to move towards extubation. So this is somebody who doesn't have deranged physiology. They're not hypotensive. They're not on any type of, you're not resuscitating them. This is just somebody who needed this particular, um, uh, surgical procedure. So it depends upon kind of what ven vent ventilator you have, if you have a ventilator um, at all. So I've done this a couple of different ways. So some of the um, uh, field ventilators, they have a CPAP mode, right? So this is a mode where the, the vent will just provide a little bit of um, pressure support or CPAP to the patient. So the patient has their own respiratory drive. If you have given them a neuromuscular blockade um, to do, to, to, you know, to be able to do the procedure and be able to intubate them, you have to reverse that neuromuscular blockade. So um, there's a couple different ways you can do that. The, there's a newer medicine out that we've been using for a couple of years now called Sugamidex, and that you know you would have to make sure that they're no longer neuro, neuromuscularly block, blocked. So once that takes place, you know the patient's ventilating on their own, and I'm assuming during this case you've probably given them some narcotic. So the you know, the, you've reached what we would call the apneic threshold with whatever narcotic they have on board. So you're looking at their end tidal CO2. And if, you know, their end tidal CO2 is anywhere from 45 to 55, they're ventilating on their own. They have a respiratory rate anywhere from, you know, 12 to, to 20 to 24. Their tidal volumes are adequate with, you know, a minimal amount of pressure supports or a minimal amount of CPAP, like five to 10 centimeters of water of, of CPAP or pressure support. You're seeing tidal volumes of, you know, four to 500, respiratory rate of 12. Um, you know, if they've actually opened their eyes and looking at you and they're tolerating the ET tube, you can, you know, there's different things you can, hey, can you squeeze my hands? And now you, you get that they're following commands. Um, which is challenging to do. It's challenging to do in the operating room in a controlled environment um, where somebody has a breathing tube, has an ET tube in, and now they're, you're asking them to squeeze their hands. Most people are just trying to pull that thing out on you. Um, so I usually look at respiratory rate, anywhere from 12 to 24, decent tidal volumes, anywhere from you know four to 500. 
and then looking at their end tidal CO2, making sure that you know it's anywhere from 45 to 55. If it's upwards of 60 and 65, then that tells me that they're not quite ready yet, that they're still retaining CO2, that they don't have the, uh, the respiratory rate and tidal volumes needed to um, decrease their, their PaCO2. So I'll wait a little bit, and then um, if that's the case, but so... Typically, following commands, fully reversed from any neuromuscular blockade, um, and then decent tidal volume, decent respiratory rate, and they're maintaining their end tidal CO2, I'll go ahead and, and um, extubate them. So if somebody was an easy intubation, then you can... Um, I wouldn't say be cavalier, but just be, okay, like, I think they're going to do okay. I'm going to go ahead and pull this tube versus somebody that you really struggle to get that breathing tube in or to intubate them. Then I would, um, I would hold off and just make, make sure that they are wide awake, that they are maintaining their spontaneous ventilation and that they're going to, um, fly when you extubate them. So that way you don't have to go ahead and try to re-intubate them, which can be challenging. Right. So those, so those are, so those are kind of the, kind of what you would do with somebody that's, you know, like you've gone ahead and done this, you know, the a fasciotomy and now you're backing out of this. But if somebody's, if you've been sitting on somebody for a couple days and they're intubated and you've been keeping them down, that's a whole different ball game of trying to extubate that person. Like you definitely have to gonna have to do what they call weaning trials um, and see how they ventilate on their own. Um, because a lot of those patients that have been that have been ventilated over the course of a couple of days, they be they become weak as far as their diaphragm, and you're going to have to put them on like a weaning trial and almost like pulmonary rehab for for a patient to get them strong enough to be able to extubate them. And there's a lot there's different um, indicators that you know the patient's going to be able to get extubated, but. Um, so typically with that particular scenario, you don't want, you don't want to extubate anybody that's on an FIO2, uh, greater than, you know, 40%, um, anybody that's, um, you know, their peep is generally greater than 10, um, or any type of like a minute ventilation that's, you know, upwards of 10 to 15 liters per minute. Like they are probably not going to tolerate being extubated for very long and you'll probably just wind up having to intubate them. And then there's, there's like, that's kind of the, 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 the challenge for patients that have been intubated for a while. Okay. That makes sense. When you, just before you extubate, I mean, I imagine you're suctioning, a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you want to make sure that, you know, especially if you're using ketamine um, for your anesthetic, um, you want to make sure that, you know, they, they, you don't have any oral secretions. Um, you want to extubate that out. And the other thing too is, is when you're waking somebody up from uh, an anesthetic, you want to make sure you have like a bite block in some way for them to not be able to bite the tube. Because um, typically, you know, if you have somebody that you're waking up from anesthesia and you don't have a bite block in, they'll, they'll bite down on that tube. And now you, now they're, you're trying to tell somebody who's disinhibited to stop biting on the tube and you can't ventilate them. And then you, you really, your only option is to kind of, re-induce them or re-put them back to sleep and then start over again. So any type of a bite block, you can use a, 
you know, an, an OPA, you can use like, typically we'll use gauze um, rolled up in a kind of like a cigar and we'll kind of put that on their, on their upper and lower molars so they can't bite down. So those are, that's another thing um, that you want to do. And then like I always tell people um, when you're extubating somebody, you have to be prepared to immediately reintubate them. So make sure you have the medications, the ET tube, the, 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 the laryngoscope blade or whatever method you use to intubate them the first time, you're going to potentially have to do that a second time. And then there's always a concern that people can have what they call, you know, like a laryngospasm on when you extubate them. That's why you suction them out real well. So there's no, um, any type of secretions that kind of trigger those vocal cords to snap shut. Um, that's another problem you would have to deal with if, uh, if that happens. Um, when it comes to, so you're talking about FiO2 and, and that makes a hundred percent sense. Um, except I really only have a Soros, so mm-hmm. an ox, a small oxygen generator yep. uh, that can do like three liters max. Um, is that something that you guys carry? Um, it depends. Um, it depends upon what's available, where we're at, but, um, yeah, I mean, if there's a Soros available, we'll use it. Like I've used, um, anywhere from smaller, just smaller, you know, pressurized oxygen tanks to sorrows. And I've had patients that just did not, um, uh, were asynchronous with the ventilator while I was trying to extubate them. So I, I really just, I disconnect them from the ventilator and then I'll just use oxygen by their ET tube while they're ventilating and just kind of keep an eye on there. And I still have my, my capnographer, my Emma um, attached to the ET tube. So that way I can make sure that they're ventilating. I can get a, a, a kind of a swag of what their end tidal CO2 is. And then I have a pulse ox on them and I just watch them. Um, and then if I see that um, uh, they look, they're able to tolerate you know, the three liters per minute that the sorrows can put out or the two liters per minute that sorrow can put out and they're, they're holding their oxygen saturations and their end tidal CO2 is not climbing um, too high, then I'll go ahead and, and extubate them. So I had one person that I think the, the anesthetic was, it was almost like eight or nine hours long. And I, and I wanted to extubate them just because we didn't, I, I just, the, I, they were, we were, the patient needed to be extubated. And it took about an hour for me to, to extubate this patient where I just kept going through the scenario of I would disconnect them from the ventilator. I would give them some blow by oxygen through their ET tube, almost like a, it's called a T piece trial, except I didn't have a T piece. Mm-hmm. And then I would, you know, just obviously watch their respiratory um, uh, efforts. I would watch their O2 saturations. I would kind of be watching my Emma with their carbon, uh, carbon dioxide. And then, you know, the person's sats would just kind of drop a little bit, drop a little bit, drop a little bit. And then I'd go, okay, well, they need the oxygen. So I'd put the oxygen back and then the, their oxygen saturations would come up. And then I would, you know, some if I needed to, I'd put them back on the ventilator to, to recruit the alveoli that are, that are becoming atelectatic by not having any type of uh, PEEP or CPAP. And I did this for about an hour, and then eventually I got to a point where the patient could breathe room air through the ET tube, um, which is you know 21% oxygen, and their sats were holding in the in the low 90s. And I was like, okay, like let's let's pull the tube and and go from here and go from there. So I pulled the ET tube, and you know I um, the patient was still um, 
kind of, uh, I wouldn't say disinhibited from their anesthetic, but was able to tolerate uh, a nasal trumpet. So I put the nasal trumpet in prior to pulling the ET tube and then, you know, and the, and the patient did fine, but it took about an hour to, to go through that to, to kind of assess whether or not I felt comfortable um, pulling that ET tube or we're going to, okay, this patient has to remain intubated and we're just, we're going to have to kind of buy this. Um, pa- this ventilated patient for however long it takes to, to get them extubated. Nice. Nice. Um, when it comes to, you know, when, when you're talking to your new CRNAs coming in, is there any other things that you would want them to, I guess, think about like any tips or tricks or just principles? Um, not necessarily. I, I think for the most part, like we always try to tell them to have a plan for kind of the, the, the usual suspects that you're going to see, you know, like have a plan for hypotension, um, have a tan, a plan for bradycardia, have a plan for tachycardia, have a plan for hypertension, you know, um, those are the kind of the big ones and it all depends upon what's causing, you know, the, the hypotension and the, you know, the bradycardia, if it's a, if it's a parasympathetic response, there's a, you have a plan for that. If it's something else, you know, you obviously have to figure out what's causing those issues, but those are typically, uh, um, things that we tell them is to, you know, have plans for that, you know, have a plan for, if you can't intubate the patient, have a plan if you can't ventilate the patient and, um, whatever you, whatever those plans are, you need to have that stuff with you. Um, whether it's in the OR, cause what you don't want to rely on is, especially when we're trying to train, um, you know, nurse anesthesia, you know, these, the nurse anesthesia students to go down range, we don't want to get them in the habit of having things in their plan that they don't have in the room that somebody has to go get for them. Cause that creates a training scar that, um, can be difficult to, to break. And it, unfortunately when they go down range, it's just them. Um, and you know, they, if they don't have what they need or what they, what was in their plan, then you don't have it. It's not like you can go to the, the tree next door and, you know, go into the, the Omni cell and grab what you need. It's just, if you don't have it, you don't have it. So it's not part of your plan. So mm-hmm. we, we try to impress that upon them. If it's, if it's part of your plan, you need to have it on your person. Yeah. Makes a hundred percent sense. Um, well, thank you, Kevin, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, Dennis. Uh, anytime, uh, let me know, and we, I'd love to talk to you again. For today's podcast, be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Out. Three more is waiting there for you.